Welcome to Looking Backward, where we analyze an entrepreneur's past to learn about the skill set, experiences, and network that they have built over the years to put them on the trajectory that they're on now. I'm your host, Chad Sakonchik. Hello and welcome. Today we have Nick Huber from Storage Squad, uh, but he is also, we, we met on the, on the podcaster circuit uh, where we eat caviar on white toast points and talk about microphones and, and whatnot. But, uh, but I actually was uh, introduced to Nick via uh, one of our, con- one of Better Legal's contractors, uh, Michael, and I got to listen to your podcast and have just been plowing through it. I mean, ones where you can actually just, you know, in an hour, you're like, wow, I, I just did three episodes. It's, it's like watching a 30 minute TV show versus an hour long TV show. So uh, <laughs> I really enjoy the bite size kind of snacking that you provide people, which is which is very cool. But uh, Nick, why don't you tell us what Storage Squad is? Yeah. So um, first of all, thanks for having me on the show, Chad. Um, appreciate everything you're, you're doing. And I, I might be able to give the listeners here a little bit of a, a, a different viewpoint because um, I started a different business. I mean, Storage Squad started when I was in college in 2011. Um, it's a pickup and delivery storage service for students. So when students go home for the summer, um, they leave their stuff with us. We show up at their dorms. We give them boxes. They pack up. Basically, they don't need to leave their dorm room to get full service storage um, from their dorm to wherever they move next year. We store it in a warehouse over the summer. Um, we are not the only companies to do that. Um, there are several competitors that we have, but um, we have kept, you know, kept growing slowly but surely. And um, now we operate in, I think, I, you know, I get confused by the numbers. I think it's 10 states. Um, we're at about 30 major colleges. Um, we're the contracted provider at uh, Penn State, George Washington, Brandeis, Emory in Atlanta, um, at a lot of Big Ten schools, a lot of Ivy League schools, and we do pickup and delivery storage. That So I love that because I hate moving. I think in my adult career, you know, in college, you have to move every year and you have to move home for the summer often. So that's an incredible service. I'm sure a lot of people love it. Um, I I use a company like that uh, called Rat Pack. I don't know if you ever heard about Rat Pack, but they do something similar where they drop off a container, kind of a miniature container at your house, and then you fill it up, and then you tell them when it's ready, and they take it, and they put it in their their area, and then whenever you're ready, they can bring it back. So if you know, you've got kind of a month or two between leases, and you've got to store it somewhere, Mm-hmm. You don't have to take anywhere. So, so it's a it's a similar service, but I think for students that that's a no brainer. Rat Pack is a great service. We are I think Rat Pack for people with you know less than ten boxes. That's what we are. So we show up, um, literally pick up the individual items, label the, label the individual items, um, store it, and then send it back. So a lot smaller scale. Um, and and for that very reason, we were able to basically bootstrap the business and start with absolutely no money or any resources at all, basically. And do you, when, when you take the boxes, so I, I know that you don't do kind of one-off, you know, pick up, you know, you don't pick up my stuff and bring it to your warehouse. You pick up my stuff and then Bobby's stuff and Sally's stuff and Jane's stuff. And you put it all in the same truck and you bring it back. And that's part of what you've, you know, built into this very efficient model. How do you 
do, do you store all their stuff separately or is it one big warehouse or do they, and, and how do you keep everything separate? Do you have a, just an amazing labeling system? Yeah, the logistics are tough. I mean, we label it. We do a grid system just like Battleship in our warehouse where um, we we record where everything is in that warehouse so that we can go get it and take it back. But um, we've had several iterations of it over the years just because it's pretty complicated when um, you you got a thousand customers in a warehouse and they all have different size shape items with different labels on them. And um, they all need to go back to different locations at different times. So logistics um, has definitely been, this is one of the most logistically challenging businesses, in my opinion, that there is out there just because of all the moving parts. That's awesome. If, if you're not iterating, somebody else is, and that's when you get overtaken. <laughs> so I, I, you know, we, we're on our probably fourth iteration of software in, in just under two years. So I, I feel that constant pain of, oh, but now I have to fix this. So now let's do this. And then you've got to communicate that. So I, I feel you a lot with that. Um, Okay, so we know what Sword Squad is. Uh, it's awesome. What you know? What I actually one more question. So this is a kind of a May to September thing where you're actually providing the service. What what do y'all do for the rest of the year? Oh, it's incredibly seasonal. It's incredibly seasonal. But um, I mean, just think about a football team in the off season, right? That's when they're doing. They're recruiting, they're doing their, um, you know, they're revolutionizing maybe their playbook, they're making big changes. Um, and, and honestly, when you're hiring over 300 part-time employees to work for two weeks, um, that doesn't come together overnight. So um, we do more work. Like we always say we make our money in December because that's when we're, we're making decisions, we're changing, we're making our systems better, we're uh, making our training systems, um, we're hiring our marketing and, and operations managers at individual schools. So, yes, it's crazy in May. And back in the early days, we were pulling all-nighters and working 20 jobs. And, and back when the business was growing, it was insane. But now that's not the stressful time of our business because, um, you know, the stressful time is three weeks before the busy season. And then you got to hit milestones six weeks before that and six weeks before that. So while it is very seasonal um, and we only get paid once a year, there are challenges with the logistics. We can't have really a lot of full-time employees. Um, we really are, are working pretty hard all year just to, to, to pull it off. So you're like Coachella for storage. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Not fire. All right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That, that's a good, uh, Oh God. That just <laughs> thinking about watching those two documentaries is making my skin crawl right now. Watching, um, watching fire festival documentary actually brought me back to the early days when, um, we were literally, uh, not prepared using Google Sheets, um, not having enough employees, and the customers kind of overloaded us because we doubled in size four years in a row. And when that happens and you're used to servicing, you know, 500 customers the first year and then 1,000 the next year and then 2,000 the next year and then 4,000 the year after that, um, you're always understaffed. You're always stressed. You're always thinking, oh, my gosh, this all might fall apart. So watching Fire Festival documentary brought me back to um, the anxiety of, of – Oh my gosh, we might not be able to pull all this off sometimes. And and how do, how do you that that's an interesting thought because you know, growth a lot of people think growth happens, you know, or investors when you talk to people that ask about your business they're like, you know, what's your rate of growth? And you know, we always project like a 6% rate of growth month over month and it absolutely does not happen like that. It's like huge jump up, huge jump down, like mm-hmm. June is an awful month, December is an awful month. January is a great month. July is a great month. Like, how, how do you anticipate and how do you plan for that? And do you plan for like, okay, well, we doubled every year for the last four years. 
So we're going to play the double this year. Yeah. You yeah, we got exactly. We got better and better at planning, but I will say that this entire the entire first five years of this business, we were uncomfortable, scared, stressed, and anxious the entire time. And yeah. um, as soon as we stopped getting that way, it wasn't as fun, and we weren't growing, and we weren't making the same. You know, it, we weren't making the same um, growth trends. But um, I will say that just dealing with the anxiety, dealing with the fear that oh my gosh, we're I, like there was at one point in the business in the early days where. I got in a $2,000 box truck that we got off, bought off, uh, off a guy in the south side of Chicago. Um, two days later, we had filled it up with supplies, and I drove it from Chicago to Boston to launch a new branch in Boston. And this was in about oh. January. Um, okay. I got to Boston with a box truck, just me. My, my now wife had an apartment there, and, and my job was just to launch our Boston branch. And so I went around with sidewalk chalk and flyers and literally spread um, try to spread the word with spending no money in Boston. Um, I try to spread the word as much as possible to get our name out there. I spent a full month um, marketing to customers, and then another month after that, marketing to customers and employees. And we got hit by a ton of signups, a ton. And it was just me in a box truck. Um, our warehouse, I, fi- I fi- realized about six days before the busiest time that it was going to be way too small. We had to secure another warehouse. We were understaffed. and um, my partner flew in, my brother flew in, his brother flew in just because it was the only way that we were going to be able to make it happen. So I was, I would, I'd wake up in the morning at 7 a.m., drive trucks all day to pick up the uh, customer stuff. I was running a truck by myself. Nowadays, we put three guys on a truck, but Danny would run a truck by himself. I would run a truck by myself. We'd be at BU in the Brownstones in Boston going up four flights of store, uh, stairs. And, I, you know, I, these are days that I would probably burn about 6,000 calories in a day just because I was doing so much physical labor. As soon as the truck was full, we'd go back to the warehouse and I would have to send my guys home because they were all exhausted from doing all the pickups because they were all, we were short staffed all over the place. And me and my partner would stay up until about 3 a.m. unloading about six full box trucks full of stuff. And then from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., we would be um, doing customer service and making a schedule for the next day and we would like blow up an air mattress and sleep for maybe 45 minutes and take a shower in McDonald's with baby wipes before going out and doing it all over again. And we did that for about six days straight um, just to pull it off in the early days. So it was definitely pretty scary. The, uh, the baby wipe shower. That's, that's amazing. Um, also, <laughs> I'm also side- I've not put that out yet. Dude, I've been there. I've, I've totally been there. And sidewalk shock is a, massively underrated marketing tactic and i don't know why more people don't do that um yeah well we were we were in a lucky position where we literally knew where all of our customers were we knew exactly where they walked we knew where they lived we knew where they went to class so um we just realized that okay we don't have the money to spend on digital advertising we don't need to because they're all right here we can reach out and touch them and um, i mean people laugh all the time when i talk about sidewalk chalk but i i literally credit that to to uh, building half of this business that we have today. That's awesome. Um, so to, I don't know if I mentioned the actual name of your podcast earlier, but the, uh, it's sweaty startups or sweaty startup on all your channels or whatnot. And yep. he's got probably 40 or 50 episodes. So, okay. We know about your business. Uh, let's start at the very beginning. I, I know from listening to your podcast that uh, you started with kind of a, a lawn mowing business kind of, an accidental one. And, and I'm, I'm noticing a theme here. What, 
when I, when I interview guys, it's they mowed lawns. And when I interview girls, it's they babysat. It's just like a mm-hmm. gender yep. thing that is just, if you're a teenager, these are the things that you do. So let's, let's start at the very beginning yeah. and, and how you got to where you are today. Okay. So um, I don't recommend this, first of all. Uh, my dad is a kind of a, a maniac. And uh, so he, I love him and, and he is literally uh, the reason why I'm here today. But so he was, I think it was in seventh grade. I was 12 or 13. It was between my seventh and eighth grade year. Um, he worked for a company that owned a commercial property in our small town in Southern Indiana. And um, the, they had an old man that, that mowed the lawns for about seven properties. I think it was three or four shopping centers and two um, two or three apartment complexes. And the old guy had a heart attack. It wasn't a serious heart attack. He was fine. But his doctor said, you, you got to stop mowing lawns in this heat. Um, so my dad goes into work one day and the boss is all stressed out saying, who are we going to find to mow the lawns? And and um, my dad did what any sane person would do. And he volunteered his uh, his seventh grade son to take over about 12 hours a week of commercial lawn care. Wait, um, you were in I seventh grade? What, what is that? You're like 12? I was, I was 13. I, I turned, I think it was a little bit after my 13th birthday between seventh and eighth grade year. Um, and he put me, so, so we had a family farm. I had been doing a ton of family work. I knew I had to cut firewood, drive tractors. And I, I was mowing the lawn already. I was weeding the lawn already. And he's like, this will be a great learning experience. Let Nick do it. So basically um, he, we already had a truck. We already had a mower. So he bought a trailer. Um, and then he basically set up, we sat down at the kitchen table and we went through a big mock business startup situation where he's like, okay, Nick, this is how much the mower costs. This is how much the truck costs. This is how much I'm going to finance it to you per mowing. This is how much you're going to have to pay me per mowing. This is how much you're going to charge to mow. And, um, and, and this is how much you're going to have to pay your mom to drive you to town to mow because you don't have your driver's license. You're going to have to pay her $10 an hour. So I was, he had me keeping a full on spreadsheet, making sure I was profitable, really teaching me about business as a seventh grader. Um, but that's not to say that when I was out on that mower for the first time, um, I, it was 95 degree heat. There was a lot of work to do, a ton of it. Um, I didn't know the way of the land yet. I, I ran over a bunch of trash because commercial properties, you got to pick up the trash before you mow, period. I had never been used to that before. So I just rolled through, chopped it all up. Um, my dad mm-hmm. comes by because obviously he's, he's curious about how his seven, seven, uh, seventh grade son is holding up here doing these, this lawn care. And he goes, he stops in and he says, Nick, Nick, what are you doing? And he gets, takes me off the mower and he's like, Nick, you got to pick up the trash. Well, by this time, the 60 pieces of trash had turned into 60,000 because <laughs> I had <laughs> chopped them all up. And it was, I was sweaty. I was dehydrated. I don't know if I was dehydrated, but I was, I was 13, right? I didn't, I didn't know how to deal with all that. So I broke down crying. I was like, dad, I quit. This is ridiculous. Why are you making me do this? And he basically, he said, okay, Nick, you cooled off. He took me in the air conditioning, put a cold towel on my head and he goes, well, you got to finish the job. Like you got to finish it. I was like, "What do you mean? What's finish it mean?" He goes, "You got to make it to the end of the summer." And it was we 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 had a big argument, and basically he got me back out there and made me do it. Um, I'm so glad he did because that summer, um, I I mean I was in I was 12 years old making 35 dollars an hour already off my time when my friends were working for 6.50 or 7.50 at the movie theater. Um, so eventually, um, a couple years later, yeah, when I, when I, I was actually, in college. When I was in college, I was working for my dad basically as a paralegal or his assistant paralegal, whatever you're calling. He was paying me $15 an hour, and I thought I was swimming in cash. And you were a seventh right. grader yeah. making 35 an hour. Yeah, yeah, it, it was weird. I, I think by the time I was a freshman in high school, I, I had 15 grand in the bank and didn't even ever spend anything because I was so frugal. I've kind of taught frugality how, as the other skill. <laughs> how old do you have to be to have a checking account? 
Um, I think my dad kind of pulled some strings at the local bank. It's, it was a credit union that he did business with. Yeah, so soon after I got tired of paying my mom uh, $10 an hour, so I went to the high school uh, hallway and I put a flyer in every single locker in the sophomore, junior, and senior year uh, hallways with my phone number on it saying, I'm hiring. If you know how to drive and you can run a weed eater, please give me a call and I'll pay you $12 an hour. Well, $12 an hour was a high wage, so I got like 50 calls. Um, and I had to interview. Here I am, 13 years old, interviewing 16, 17, 18-year-olds. Is your setup a middle school, 6, 8, 7, high school? K through 12, man. I graduated uh, 83 people in a small, small town in southern Indiana. So, wow. Um, it was, okay. It was so a, you were, close so all you had school. to do was go one, one hall over. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. So I, I got got somebody hired, um, ended up having some turnover, Found eventually found a decent guy who ended up working with me for about two years driving the truck while I mowed. And um, then I could pay him, you know, $12 an hour, but get done 30% faster. So I made much better money than when my mom was sitting in the truck making $10 an hour. She was pretty uh, over it at that point anyway, that my, my dad had volunteered her to drive me around town. So that, he wasn't um, only driving, he was driving and working. And so you basically paid an extra $2 an hour to get another body. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, ended up going to college, um, leaving that business behind, basically. Um, I had a little bit of money in the bank, but entrepreneurship still, I didn't know that it was for me. I was just going to go to college. I ended up running track and field and going to um, Cornell in upstate New York. Um, but yeah, went, went to college, went through college, studied labor relations, um, had a good time. Funny story, that 40 grand that I made and took to college with me, I, I made a couple rent payments and a little bit of a tuition payment, and I decided to put the rest in the stock market in September of 2008, about six days before the stock market uh, no. crashed. Yeah, okay. so that my 40 grand turned into about 25 grand um, first week, first couple of weeks of school, which was, um, which made me still to this day just not want to put any of my investments in the stock market. Yeah, I invested in all blue chip stocks, and I was just going to let them sit there. Right, but like Ford, Ford cratered, you know. So yeah, blue chip wasn't, yeah, yeah. wasn't any better than no, anybody else. But did you? Did you did you buy at the top, sell at the bottom, or did you hold on to it and watch it kind of crawl back up? Or well, I had to I had to make tuition payments and pay rent, so um, oh, it was man. just a bad okay. idea, a bad idea to yeah. do that. So I had to sell, and then um, didn't do my taxes right and had to. It was just a big mess. So, um, so someone want to touch on real quick. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Someone want to touch on because because I love this. Mom was driving for. I, I got to go back to this. The the mom's driving for ten dollars an hour, and then you hired a an older high schooler or 16 year old to, to do it for 12 an hour. If your dad had not put those constraints on you, I'm, I'm sure your mom didn't need the $10 an hour. So your dad could have easily, or your mom could have done you a favor. And my mom would have been like, you don't need to pay me the $10, Chad. Like if your if your dad had not put those constraints on you and your mom hadn't taken that money, you would not have come up with that plan. You would have kind of been fat and happy and just been like, oh, this is just some mom uh, yeah, yeah. Entre entrepreneurship kind of starts in the house, man. And my dad literally instilled it in me by making the right calls and getting me to understand how business worked. And from that day on, like I walked around life just looking at business a different way. Like I'd walk in stores and, and think of like the, the thoughts that we have now as entrepreneurs. How does this business make money? How does it work? Um, what's going on with it? Um, how much are they paying these employees? What do you, what kind of profit do you think they're making? I was, Dude, I, I, was do, a I do that all the time. I thought school. I was, I, I do that all the time. I thought I was nuts like walking in and doing that. I'm glad to hear that, that I'm not the only one doing that. But, but I think the lesson in that is just that you, is that everybody works better within constraints. If you don't have constraints because you, 
you know, raised $2 million and you're like, oh, I can hire 50 people and da, 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 da. Like you do better when you're mm-hmm. under the gun and you are forced to be creative in your problem solving. And had your dad not done that, you would have not learned that lesson and taken that forward. So sorry to kind of go backwards a little bit. No, that's absolutely right. It, it started right. twisting around in my brain and, and I had to have a touch on that. But so you lost all your money or you lost half of it. You still have to make <laughs> tuition payments. Um, I'm sure that was just a, a huge blow to the chest. Oh, it was a sick, it was a sick <laughs> feeling. I mean, I didn't, I didn't talk about it for, yeah, I didn't talk about it for five years. Probably. I didn't talk about it to anybody until recently. The only people who knew were my parents because I had to start asking them to co-sign student loans to pay tuition. And they're like, what happened to your money? So that was, a, that was a real, uh, real backbreaker. Yeah. That sucks. Okay. So, so yeah, then you're in college. Yeah. Yep, doing track and field, having a good time, um, learning how to communicate with people. Um, I had a great experience, had a lot of good friends. Um, about between junior and senior year is when we founded Storage Squad. And what happened with that is I listed my apartment on Craigslist to try to find a sublet, somebody to rent it from me over the summer because it's 12 month leases. I'm only there for nine months. I didn't want to pay extra rent. On top of that, I was moving houses and I was going to be paying double rent all summer. So I listed my place on Craigslist, but so did everybody else in college who was going home. So obviously it sat for three or four weeks. Nobody was reaching out. Eventually somebody called me and said, Hey Nick, um, it was, it was a nice lady who lived in New Jersey and her husband and her son went to Cornell and she said, I used a pickup and delivery storage service last year and they were not very good. And I want you, I want to put my son's stuff in your apartment, but I need you to pick it up. And, and I was like, oh man i don't know about this and i asked her a couple more questions and i was like fine fine i'll do it how much stuff is it she told me about how much it was um for the record it ended up being about three times more than she said it was but i went up and and luckily i was driving a 1999 cadillac deville that i bought from my grandma so i had a 93 cadillac deville in college (laughs) my senior year of college i had a 93 cadillac deville white with blue leather interior that thing was like a boat yep they'd send me to pick up uh people for the parties because my car could fit 30 people in it. So, <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah, luckily I could fit a lot of stuff in it. So um, I, I fit all the stuff in, took it, put it in my apartment and I made about $150 in about an hour and a half of work. And I'm like, okay, that was nice, but now I can't rent my apartment. What do I do now? Um, so basically I just said, okay, I'm going to try to fill up my entire apartment with stuff. So I called all my friends. Um, I sent an email to the track team listserv. Um, I had some friends in sororities and fraternities. I tried to get them to send emails to their friends, basically saying, this guy, Nick, will come pick your stuff up, and he's a lot cheaper than the company that dominates at Cornell. Um, before I knew it, I had – my room was totally full, no more space. So I went to my the house that I'm moving into now, and this is where my partner, Dan, comes into the story. Um, I, I walk into his room, and I'm like, hey, man, um, I need to use the basement of this house. This, this house had probably 900-square-foot basement. And he goes – what do you need to use it for? So I told him the story. And he's like, holy cow, I love it. Like, I want to get involved. I want to help you. He had a 97 Buick LeSabre, um, the second largest car. Um, so we both just, we shook hands like, all right, let's just see how the week goes. Let's get as much stuff as we can. Well, we ended up with about 50 people storing their stuff. We filled the entire basement. We filled both of the rooms that I had moved to and the, and the old room, his room. We rented two other rooms from two other guys. And we locked the door, we made like three grand in cash, and then went home. So we go home, we're like, oh my God, that was kind of fun. What are we going to do? And um, we just decided, hey, let's, 
let's try to build a business around this. We, we, we called and, and started studying the competitors, realized that they ran around with clipboards and they were really inefficient and they were really expensive. Um, this was about the time where everybody had a smartphone in their pocket so we could kind of communicate a lot better and didn't need to use clipboards. You said that you listed your place on Craigslist, but it was kind of like a, an oversaturated market. Is that right? You were just saying, Absolutely. I want to rent my yep. room for the summer. And it was just too many people were, you know, there was outstrip supply than there was demand. Absolutely. And so yep. all you did by accident is switch what the space was used for and then just had this flood of, of demand now just because you changed yep. a tiny little aspect of of what you were renting. Yep, that's right. Okay, so you've got, so you, you start doing research, you're seeing that all these uh, existing competitors are really using outdated methods. You guys have smartphones, what what happens? Yeah, so um, th keep in mind, this was also right during finals and Danny and I are both on the track team at Cornell and we were running around to the Ivy League championships. I have a vivid memory of about to get in the blocks to run the 110 hurdles at the Ivy League championships and I'm talking to customers on the phone, trying to snag business. Like we were just, we were just hustling. Like we didn't have, we didn't spend a single dollar. We didn't do anything. We all we just, we just got excited. Whereas most people would have been like, okay, I found somebody for 150 bucks. They would have either told them no, or they would have picked up that one person, went home and and had some fun. But luckily, I ran into Danny's house and he got me so fired up about this business and what we could do with it. We had these wild dreams and and so yeah, we go home over the summer. We pick a domain name. We uh, build a website on WordPress. We study all of the competitors. And, and um, he had an internship in D.C. I went back home, worked on the business over the summer, come back to school. It's the start of our senior year. And all of our friends start to get jobs. They're all getting investment banking jobs in New York City. They're going to D.C. They're going to L.A. They're making they're, they're like getting legit jobs. And me and Danny are sitting there like, oh, my gosh, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? I actually had an offer on the table to go work at Coca-Cola in Irvine for about 70 grand a year. So it, it, we were just like, okay, if we're gonna do this, there's gonna be a big opportunity cost of using our degrees to start moving boxes around. So we're gonna have to really get after it. So he had a cousin that went to University of Illinois. He had a good friend that went to University of Iowa. And I had a really good friend that went to Indiana University. So we're like, okay, let's launch in all of these towns. I don't know how we're gonna do it. I don't know how we're gonna pull it off, but let's launch in all these towns and let's really do well at Cornell. And if we can get so, so what customers. made you what made you do what made you decide okay so you, so you, you kind of had Cornell on lock based on this this initial uh, year so is this a following year that, that you came up with this plan and yeah and right after we made, picked all the stuff up we kind of had tr tried to make a plan um but first we were not the main player at Cornell there, there's a there is a contracted school ran provider that has a monopoly there that gets fifteen hundred customers and makes about $300,000 a year in revenue at Cornell. So we were competing with the big dogs. Everybody's like, what are you guys doing? You're competing with big red stores. Like they have the, the contract. They, like, they were sitting in the front of the dorms with tables and we were not even allowed to uh, put, a, put a flyer. You know what I mean? So it, it was, it was a lot of people told us that we were kind of fighting an uphill battle. Yeah. Well, I, I think what's interesting is, and I think you've touched on this in your podcast. I know you've touched on this in your podcast where you're like, this is a great idea. And then you go down this rabbit hole for months and months or years and years, and then you try to sell it to people, and people are kind of like, eh, I don't know, eh. 
and, and you're trying to convince them to buy it. And then there are the business opportunities that just kind of fall in your lap. And it's like someone is just willing to give you money. And it's almost like just always have your ears and eyes open to whenever someone's like, I will pay you to do this. And then say, boom, okay, someone's just willing to pay me to do this thing. Are there other people that are like this that are willing to pay me to do this thing? What is this thing? Let's explore it. And then you can just like, you know, you can go deeper and deeper and expand just like, like you did. You, you had this opportunity, you guys rally real quick, you got it done. And then you're like, okay, we are probably not the only school that has this problem. What are the only school, the other schools? And that allow you to go almost, you're going to need to give me the timeline. Was it like months or was it like a year that this happened? But, you know, you went from, okay, we got this done to go from just finishing the Cornell stuff to then doing it in other places. Was it that same? Well, the summer? problem was, yeah, the, well, no, the problem was that there's only one event a year where you can pick up stuff, where the students go home for the summer. So we right. had to wait until, we had to wait a full year to launch again at three other schools. So that's why we were kind of like, we got to really get after it because if yeah. we don't do it this time, we're going to have to go get jobs. Like if we don't, you we don't get any customers, we're going to like, Okay, I've got this $70,000 job potentially waiting for me, or I can launch at three other schools and just kind of wing it. Yep, that's right. That's right. And so we did Okay, it. so so yeah, let, let's go into that, that the next summer. Yeah, so, so the rest of, Yeah, the rest of it kind of happened quick. I mean, looking back, it was a lot of the same thing of of okay, we went to Iowa, Indiana, and uh Illinois the first year. It went well. We got five those ones. customers. Because we had friends there. That's the only reason. We had friends that we could trust that could run the business. So we took so out did you ask money, them if they had three the cargo vans. Um, we just, I, I, I'm a, I'm a excitable guy. So okay. I just called them up and got them fired up, basically. Um, we didn't so you do didn't even a lot do of any research, research on whether they like. They well, yeah, we like, called oh, competitors, yeah, we and there was a competitor that we didn't like. There, we looked at demographics of how many international students, how many out-of-state students were at the schools. I mean, we did a lot of research, ah, that's but genius. eventually, okay. yeah, eventually we were just like, let's, um, we just got to get, we just got to get out there. We can't just go to Boston right now because we don't know anybody in Boston. We, we're going to have to just get after it with, uh, with the schools where we have friends that, that we can trust. So the next year we did about 550 students um, and it was just on the edge of our goal was 500. Like if we got more than 500, we made a pact that neither one of us were going to get jobs and we got 550. It was just nice. enough to pull us, but we weren't. We knew we didn't make any money, like none. Um, we barely paid back the money that we had borrowed in student loan money to buy the three cargo vans that we needed to launch at those three uh, schools. So the next year after that, um, we doubled again. It was essentially yeah, a reinvestment bought, of your profits into your business. Yeah, we bought dumpy vans that were 1999 to 2001 vans for under, under I don't think we spent more than $2,500 on a cargo van for the first three years wow. of business. Wow, okay. Yep, yep. Turns out trucks trucks and cargo vans, the truck, the same year model, cost six times as much as a cargo van. So we bought cargo vans. Um, they hauled the stuff around, and then we rented trucks during the busy season. Um, two years later is when I drove the truck to Boston to launch Boston's branch. My um, partner, Dan, launched Penn State that year. Then we convinced a friend to help us launch Philly. Then we launched D.C. the year after that. And um, it was just crazy. We doubled in size every year. Um, did a lot of things that our competitors weren't doing. Um, low, our prices were rock bottom so that we could get volume because we knew if we could break in and get 500 customers at school, then that would just keep coming and feeding for the next five or 10 years, you know? 
Time for a sponsored message. Get your LLC from BetterLegal.com. Estate filing, EIN filing, and operating agreement for one price as fast as your state will allow. Also offering registered agent service and ongoing state compliance. Let Better Legal handle formalities so you can handle the actual business. So, so the first year, okay, so you started at Cornell. The next year, you launched at three new schools, so you're at four schools. The next summer after that, how many did you do? You do? Oh, it's, it's hard for me to remember looking back, but I know that we went to three or four more locations every year. So Got it. Uh, we, were, we, were just, we were totally expanding our comfort zones, and people with any anxiety or, uh, would have just been like, get me the hell out of this company because these guys are crazy. And so do you still launch three <laughs> new schools a year or how, how does that plan so now, continue yeah, to expand? So, so we realized that there's probably only about 30 schools in this country that we want to go to. Um, the big okay. state schools, um, the, the ones where the kids are more middle class, there's not a lot of international students. This is a luxury service for um, students that are flying to school and flying home. You know what I mean? So yeah. school like a school like uh, North Carolina, where there's only 7% out-of-state students, is not going to be a good school yeah. for us. We like private the University of Texas at Austin here has, I think, 90% in state, and they're probably all yep. from Dallas, Houston, and Austin. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah, so we realized that there was a cap on the business. So about three years ago, um, Danny and I were finally starting to make money in the business. Um, he focused on – so we kind of switched gears. I left the student storage business to, to focus solely on self-storage development, which is what I do now. Um, we reinvest all of the money that we make basically back into property that we're building. So how, many, how many years did you go from the Cornell initial launch to getting into self-storage? Yeah, 2017 is when we opened our first self-storage facility. So it was five years after five years. our first okay. season. Yep, yep. And um, that – so Danny kind of standardized it. He did a lot of great things to make the student storage business run by itself, basically. We have some awesome employees there now. Um, and it's going to continue to grow. Like we're doing a lot of exciting things. We're launching a moving company, but my focus now is real estate development. And so we built a self-storage facility in upstate New York and, um, we're operating that, um, doing the same type things We're we're implementing some technology and, uh, just making that industry a little bit better. And it's been going really well. How, how long did you, you know, so it was, it was five years from the time that you opened your first, uh, self-storage place. How many years into uh, Storage Squad did you say, I'm going to want, I, I can't do it now, but I'm going to want to get into, so what did you start coming up? Little oh, man, I mean, Danny and I were, my, yeah, my when Danny and I were sleeping on those air mattresses and answering customer service calls, like, that's when we decided, like, we can't do this forever. This, this service business is so intensive. It's so yeah. stressful. It's so seasonal. It's so risky. Like, we had 18-year-olds driving around box trucks on the streets of Boston um, yeah. we realized that it could not be the future for us. We had yeah. to have a moving company. We had to have some contracts with universities. We had to have some things that would provide long-term value and self-storage fit into that picture really well. And so do you get into something like what Rat Pack does where you, you know, have kind of containerized? Because it almost seems like a, a natural progression since you essentially do that for the students on a seasonal basis. You could provide that same service uh, for everybody that's moving and, you know, in a containerized mm -hmm. fashion, is that something that you're thinking about? Yeah. There's also a, a side note is there's also companies like MakeSpace and Boxby that raise 
tons of venture capital. I think MakeSpace is over $50 million of venture capital to do exactly what we do for regular people that live in Manhattan or Chicago or Boston, just getting piece by piece of pickup delivery storage. So basically, yeah, the opportunities have been um, coming. Like we have thousands of different areas where we could put our time and our resources. Um, we chose self-storage and we've, we've really pride, taken pride in our ability to say no to opportunities and kind of really like only go after the stuff that makes the most sense for us. So, and so how many more uh, self-storage units are you, are you planning to, because I know you have, I think you've got one in Ithaca. Is that right? Yeah, we got one in Ithaca, New York. We bought another one in Ithaca, New York. Um, we have a couple projects in the works as well. Um, but now is a tough time because um, the economy has been booming. Real estate is super expensive. The cost of materials to build have went up 10% a year for the past five years. Um, so it's we're so kind of taking building slow, these or are you buying existing ones and then just in, in, in integrating technology into an existing old old one? Yeah, that's uh, doing a little bit of both. Whatever opportunity okay. um, allows us to get get more properties under our under our belt. So you had mentioned that now you focus on real estate development. Is that is that the the self storage stuff or is that something different? Yeah, self storage. So we we literally built the the building and we acquired the property. We um uh, like got it properly permitted. We contracted it out to build the slabs, build the actual building, and now we're operating it as well. How do you go uh, so, about yeah. building something like that, having no experience, knowing what a building like that's supposed to look like, or what weird things you might have forgotten that public storage or someone else might have that because they've run the business for multiple decades? Like, how, how do you go yeah, about so we got, the design process yeah. and all that? Yeah, we got some outside. You laughed. I feel like there's a story behind that. Now. I want to touch on that. Yeah, yeah. So my dad works for a company that has been building um, nursing homes, hospitals, and assisted living facilities for about 30 years. Um, and so he he was my my weekly phone call to to kind of make sure that I was doing things the right way. But um, self storage is not as complicated as building a hospital. There's only about five contracts because the building shows up you buy a building package and they show up and they erect it on site. Right. And, and I visited thousands of storage facilities to kind of decide how we wanted to lay it out and how we wanted to um, do the unit mix. And, and there was a lot that went into it for sure. And it was extremely scary to do but that. And, and getting alone. So you like you reach out to a company that makes storage unit buildings and you just say, I want this many of this type of, storage unit, I want this many of this type, and I want the building to kind of look like this, and, and they just kind of ship all the stuff to you? Well, you got to start with a civil engineer, and you look at a piece of property and um, figure out how many buildings you can put there and how much driveway you need around those buildings, where you're going to uh, hold the stormwater and manage, like, the rainwater so that it doesn't flood. Um, and then I, I got on AutoCAD, learned AutoCAD, and basically made floor plans of the buildings of where I wanted the hallways to be, what size units where, um, and and it was basically a, a, a three-year-long research project for me, where in my free time, instead of watching TV, I was um, I was reading and, and looking up floor plans of self-storage facilities and calling them to figure out their occupancy and their pricing, and um, just doing all the all the competitive research that I could do. You know, I think it's funny that you mentioned you know instead of watching TV, you know, I, I love my fair share of TV and doing uh, kind of you know extracurricular activities, but I kind of always have my iPad or laptop out if I'm at home watching TV or a movie, and I'm constantly just looking and researching 
different things. So it's funny that you say that. Exactly. It's almost like exactly. that's our that's our entertainment. You know, it's it's yeah. to yeah. learn more, to expand, to you know, try to figure out those processes, just like you mentioned earlier about walking into a store and trying to figure out the cost structure and the employees and mm-hmm. how this, I'm always fascinated when I walk into a restaurant, I'm like, there's like 30 people here on staff. How, how, how like restaurants seem upside down on, on the cost structure, but anyway. Um, so how, yeah, but I'm, you, I'm the exact same way. How, how did you compete? Because, you know, just like, um, just like with the, the moving, company with the, um, you know, I do want to talk competing with a mature company in a mature industry, but you just did it differently. You, you, you had better prices, you had better technology. So it's almost kind of like a better, cheaper, faster situation. Like in, in I yeah, talk about that on your podcast. Um, you hit it on the head chat. I mean, that's, that is the deal with these service businesses. So if there's a business out there where somebody has to show up to you in person, um, the odds are it's dominated by a company that, doesn't know how to use email or is still using a fax machine and advertising in the yellow pages. They're so just we doing were it the same way they did it companies. 10, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. And they're making plenty of money, yeah. but it is so painful for the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. So the, the so, opportunities in, in this area were big because these, these companies were running around with clipboards and, and uh, taking orders on the phone. And, um, you know, you needed to schedule your appointment five days in advance. And we were the we were a company that could come up and say, all right, you call us, we'll get you on a schedule in a truck. Like you'll have a spot on our truck schedule five minutes later, and you're going to get a text message with when our truck is going to arrive. So it was like it was a totally different experience from what our competitors were doing. So you know, it's just the the the, the, the companies are so far behind when it comes to these services. I mean, you think about calling a plumber or. Um, dealing with anything on your house that you need somebody to come out and see you on and you make 10 calls and maybe two or three of them return it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so what, what did you do in the self storage business that made you different? You know, I know what you did in the, in the college market, but what did you do in the, you know, this mature market where there's storage units everywhere? I mean, I can find a storage unit. Yeah. Very, very simply. What was your marketing tactics? What, what was your innovations that you've done? Absolutely. So we looked at these companies that were having full-time managers sitting in a little office, twiddling their thumbs, answering 10 calls a day. And we said, how can we get rid of that $80,000 line item? And so we put in a security system. We put in an automatic gate that I can open on my phone. Um, I have literally every unit on a security camera so that I can show customers units from an office. And we can manage that facility with $2,000 a year of on-site payroll. Whereas our competitors are spending 80. We're managing them remotely. You know, let's say I jump the fence and I run up. Who's going to catch me? Well, every unit has a lock on it. So there's, there's no, that's no different because our competitors aren't staffing people in the middle of the night anyway. Okay. Um, so, okay. yeah. So all yeah, you did it, was it, remove the eight to the, the nine to five guy. Yeah, that's right. And we're not the only ones doing that either, but but the, all the yeah. big dogs, public storage, extra space storage, life storage, they are all having. And so, do you are you less that, are you less expensive than than your competitors, or you kind of have the a similar price point in a, a good location, and then you just remove that one line item from the the expense? Yeah, well, when we were leasing up, we were a little bit more affordable, but um, the demand has been high and. 
we are we are we know how to operate from a rate management perspective as well whereas the mom and pops will fill up and be charging the same rent they were charging 10 years ago to a good client um, we understand that you have to raise and lower the price of the units based on supply and demand so yeah. if it's the last unit that's going to be a really expensive unit and if it's if there's 20 units open it's going to be a more affordable unit and rents are going to raise every six months you know on a schedule just like the the big companies with the data the big data are managing their rent we're doing the same thing with ours so honestly, we are producing higher revenue, and and we're lowering expenses. Um, do you um in these in, in these towns? Do you uh do you have to buy a standard software package that manages storage units, or do you come up with your own? Yeah, software as a service. There's there's a hundred fifty dollar a month awesome out of the box piece of software that that we got to to uh, <laughs> it's a beautiful thing beautiful thing. We didn't and need so, to build anything. We didn't need to do anything. And so you also mentioned moving. So you have? Do you have a moving business as well? Is that included in the Storage Squad, or is that a separate business, like a separate entity? Yeah, that's included in Storage Squad Boston only. So we're launching a moving company in Boston. So okay. um, we're just going to do. You say you're launching three so bedrooms. Going to happen? You haven't done it yet. We've been taking move jobs for about two years. Um, oh wow! And, but okay. we are just now ramping up, trying to get a move on the on the schedule every every day this summer. So we're doing a lot of two or three bedroom local moves. We're not doing out of state moves. We're not doing five bedroom house moves. We're focusing on basically being the resource that all of our students that we've been servicing these past eight years in Boston um, are now going to to uh, to help help them move around as they as they move three or four times before they're thirty. And so, do you reach out to your exist like do you reach out to your existing customers from five years ago and because you now know that they're graduated or they're you know not mm-hmm. they're not eighteen anymore they're you know twenty one twenty two or, or older. Do you kind of segment your email list based on that and say, hey, we know you're in this area and we now have this service and it yep. works in yep. the same easy fashion that uh, mm-hmm. that we provide. And so tell me more about the moving business and how that's going to evolve and what, what you do there. Do they still pick up the boxes and move everything? Like, Tell me about that whole situation. Yeah, it's it's the old sweaty moving business, except um, we're leaning on our current brand and kind of and kind of. Uh, milking the lifespan of our customers that were in college. So we already have, we're already in the back of their mind. They're already getting our, our newsletters. They're already getting um, our messages about moving, like you said, and, and they're in town in Boston. So when they, when it comes time to move, they're like, Oh, what about that company that picked up my stuff and took it back to me when I was an undergrad at, at Harvard? And they'll, they'll give us a ring. So it, it's definitely, it's been great, but moving is also a challenge. It's a totally different business. So it's, it's, um it's something where we're, we're devoting resources to it, but we are we're not we're not pot committed at this time because it's just such a, a different business that's pretty challenging. So So you're still just kind of learning about it before you decide to maybe so you might not even launch it in the existing college towns. Yeah, de- definitely not in our small college towns. Um we would like to in the future we see it being in, in DC, Philly, and Boston, which are our three biggest cities that we operate in. And is that is that where the students from those universities end up? Yeah, yeah, a lot of them. Well, a lot of them go to New York City. A lot of them go to New York City, but um, but yeah, we have a we have we've been servicing ten thousand customers a year for four years now. So we we've got a lot of of ex customers out there Brand in the real world. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly right. So we're definitely excited about that. You know, I think I think it's interesting. One of my biggest flaws that that I've done over the past you know decade plus in trying to start my own business was 
you know, trying to come up with a big idea. It's not big enough. But in reality, you can just start small, do this one thing really, 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 really well, laser focus, just like y'all did for, for five whole years before you decided to mm-hmm. open up the cell storage thing. You, y'all just really polished that pearl. You know, you turned a rock into a pearl and you did it over a five-year period. And then you utilize that. So, you know, you grew through expansion and brand awareness and, and things like that. But then you're not starting a new business. You're not going off and doing power washing. You're not doing window cleaning or you're not doing, um, you know, flipping houses. You are staying in your wheelhouse. You are taking things that you already know about where you already have customers that like your brand and you're just expanding the value of that customer over a longer period of time to kind of, you know, squeeze all the juice that you possibly can. So I love that business and always start something that is very laser focused and niche. And so, so Nick, why don't you kind of give your pitch of uh, the sweaty startup, uh, uh, sweaty startup podcast, because that's kind of like, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of alley-ooping you here on this. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. all you, t- that's what you talk about, which is, there's just all of these older companies. And, and I've got a, uh, one of our investors um, also purchased a, like a, like a cabinet business, like a kitchen cabinet business, I think. And he was telling us stories about how they look at, they, he was asking about something and, and the woman said, oh, let me look that up on the transcript. And he goes, transcript, what are you talking about? And she went over to this, uh, you know, they did not use calculators. They, well, they use calculators, but the calculators with the roll and, yeah. and, oh and the, the, the physical printing. Yeah, yeah. And so she looked up, like, I guess they were timestamps maybe. And she, like, looked back two weeks. Like, this is not mm-hmm. Excel spreadsheet or a Google spreadsheet. Like, this is done on paper. And this is siloed right here. Like, this is, like, there are so, like, people think that with all of these big companies, you mentioned Boxy and all this money that's getting, you know, invested in all these companies that are doing this service work. But the reality is there's just so many opportunities out there where you can, Quattro, Quattro Sam is in, in the ATX construction episode, mentions how in Austin, which is booming right now, it just has, you know, lots of buildings going on. There are all of these existing companies that have been here forever that just don't want to do the smaller jobs. And that's how he built his business was he would actually go out on a Thursday night at 10 o'clock at night or go out on a Saturday and look at a job and quote a job where other people just weren't doing it for weeks and weeks on end or just would flat out not do it. And so he got his little start in the market that is now expanding simply because of that. So why don't you talk about kind of your whole philosophy on that? Yep. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm living it. Um, I, I mean, you look, you think about entrepreneurship, you think about who is an entrepreneur. You ask anybody on the street who is an entrepreneur, they point at people like Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, and, and they, they, they think about Shark Tank and new ideas and taking risks and doing all this new evolutionary things, right? And that is not, in my mind, the low-risk way to be an entrepreneur. I mean, look around. I look around myself. You look around you. Who are the wealthiest people that we know? Who are the most successful business people that we know? They are the people that started really small. 
They're the people that didn't try to change the world. They didn't even have a new idea. They literally started doing something because an opportunity showed up. There were already tons of other people doing it. That a market already existed. There were already companies. There were already customers. They weren't trying to train customers. They weren't trying to revolutionize an industry. They literally just started local. They started small. And they grew with their opportunities. They grew with their money. They grew with their business. And, um, I mean, that, that is my whole pitch with the Sweaty Startup is that, unfortunately, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, and these, these entrepreneurs that have, don't get me wrong, they're incredible people, um, are, are, you know, that, that is what is viewed as an entrepreneur. When they are outnumbered 20,000 to one by entrepreneurs who clean windows, power wash driveways, build homes, are plumbers, you know, pick up and deliver storage boxes. Um, this, is, this is my whole pitch is if you want to be an entrepreneur, these people think that they need to have a new idea. They spend all this time, all this money, um, take all this risk when the odds are maybe one in a thousand that it all works out. But if you just look around you and look at what you physically need at your home or at your apartment, um, you can have so much of a better uh, odds of success with entrepreneurship. And, and everybody, everybody probably walks around and thinks a dozen times a week, whenever they're dealing with a service or a business, well, that's stupid. And when you have that thought, that's a business opportunity. And just because you don't know about, you know, uh, making curtains or power washing or building a house or doesn't necessarily mean you can't get into the business. There's an opportunity yeah, yeah, there you don't and need, you can learn. You don't need to be the only competitor. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, you can just get a small piece of the pie. You don't need the whole pie, right? People want the whole pie because Apple has the whole pie um, yeah. or Amazon. Literally, you can move boxes around and only service 10,000 customers a year in 23 states. And my business can't really get much larger than that. And we can clear really good money. We can live really good lives. We can work five hours a week and we can go on and do other bigger, better things. And maybe business three, business four, business five is where it starts to get bigger, better. And we start to try some new things. and, and do things we're passionate about and uh, try to change the world, you know, down the road. But people trying to change the world right off the bat are are in for a a long journey. And so you mentioned that, you know, kind of working five hours a week, you know, I I, want to get there one day. We're we're not in that right now, but you know, you put in a lot of work over five years, but you own the business outright. You know, you don't have investors. Uh, You can now pivot into these other things. And because you got to kind of hustle for those years, and now you are paying yourself a you know a comfortable salary. I assume you can now spend that free time doing other things, but not working for someone else. With that, um, check out sweatystartup.com. Uh, Nick is and uh, in, in check out the podcast. I, I mentioned the website because I think it links to all the the podcasts. But he's got articles and articles yeah. and articles yeah. and articles and articles upon themselves. Um, but Nick's episodes just have the same vigor that he, you know, he just kind of exuded here and there are fantastic points that he makes. They're not all great points or they're not all relevant points to everybody. And, and I also want to mention, and he even mentioned this in an episode is, you know, not everything he says is gospel. It is a suggestion. It's what worked for him. So do your best to, you know, listen to Nick, definitely listen to Nick's podcast where you start up, you know, get a broad range of, of input and then pick and choose the things that work specifically for you because 
we've all read the business books, we've all followed the blogs, and there are always these stupid handbooks and these guides, five ways to do content marketing. That's not, mm-hmm. that's just not the truth. So thank you so much for, uh, for coming on. How, how else can people reach out to you or find you on, on, online? Yeah, yeah. So um, send me an email, honestly. If you're, if you're interested in this kind of thing, you have a question for me, um, email me, nick at swaystartup.com. Um, I don't put time and energy into social media because I'm, I'm not seeing the ROI there. Um, I'm not going to be a guy on Twitter, Instagram, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm eager to help and happy to um, introduce anybody out there into, into a business that they can start, you know, with low risk part-time and, and on the side. So Chad, really appreciate you having me on and um, uh, I'll be following along everything you do as well. I'm excited to um, have you in my network and a friend. So appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, and to all the listeners, Uh, Thank you for listening. This is Chad Sakonchik from Looking Backward.